BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1988. And this podcast is a dedication going out to all the Dreamlanders and all the freaks. The movie? Hairspray. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by my movie cohort, Amy Nicholson. We love movies. We love talking about movies. We love drawing connections to classic films, looking at these films that are a part of our culture and asking, are they as good as we remember or do we just remember them that way? Which is a very loaded question for an episode that is about watching my childhood favorite film that you have not seen. Oh, Paul, I will say nothing. I will not interrogate you yet. I will just say we are doing the John Waters Hairspray, a movie that has shaped me in every single way. And when I watch this movie, it's almost like understanding myself a little bit better. I feel kind of like this is a podcast episode where I'm just going to like walk in front of everybody and like take off my shirt and say, ta-da, this is who I am as a person. And now now I am revealed. So a little scary. There's only a few movies that I feel this this way about. Well, I will keep my opinion to myself until we get into the main episode. But I will tell you that we are going to go on a deep dive and talk about the characters that make up this John Waters movie. Not only are we going to kind of explore the tragedy of Divine, but also the impact that Divine had as well as get into some of these bizarre pairings of Sonny Bono and Deborah Harry and Piazzadora and Rick Ocasek. I mean, this movie, in many ways, is John Waters' most mainstream film, but is it his most subversive because we don't even see what he was trying to do? I love this question because this is definitely a movie that crept up on me that as many times as I've watched it, it has changed and evolved under my own feet. To me, that is a beautiful test of art, a film that changes every time you watch it. Well then, Amy, as Corny Collins might just say, let's unspool it! 
The year is 1988, and John Waters is about to do something shocking, which arguably isn't easy, because in 1988, John Waters has been shocking audiences for 20 years with no-budget underground movies starring his Baltimore friends. The Dreamlanders, that's what they call themselves. John Waters' most iconic muse is his childhood neighbor, Divine. John himself gives Divine that name, and together they are fearless and upsetting and transgressive. You've probably heard of the bit in Pink Flamingos where Divine eats actual dog poop. Yeah, right? Well, if you've seen the movie, you know it's not even the most disturbing scene. No, 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 because Pink Flamingos was originally rated X until... The invention of the NC-17 rating, which it continues to have for what the MPAA calls extreme perversities shown in an explicit way. John and Divine are Hollywood outsiders. They've just figured out how to make an impact without a lot of money. In fact, they're not so different from last week's best friends team up, James Wan and Lee Wanell of Saw. Let's go through the numbers. John and Divine's first films cost like $300. Their most recent film, the scratch-and-sniff melodrama Polyester, cost them a whole $300,000, which to them was just amazing. And now they have an actual Hollywood budget, almost $3 million to make Hairspray. But the most shocking thing is Hairspray is going to be rated PG. But some of the people at New Life wanted me to put in the word shit so I'd get a PG-13. I said, no, this is what's shocking that it's a PG. It's the, and, and Divine got the best reviews of his life because he was playing against type, which was this monster we made up to scare hippies. You know, people think Divine was trans. He didn't want to be a woman. He wanted to be Godzilla, you know? Hairspray is inspired by John's own teenage years in Baltimore, where he and everybody else was obsessed with this daily televised dance party called The Buddy Dean Show. The Buddy Dean Show was on air for two and a half hours a day, six days a week. And in the late 50s and in the early 60s, it was the most popular local TV show across all of America. The white kids who danced on the show, they became local Baltimore celebrities. But black kids were not allowed on air, except for one segregated day a month. And the show called that, excuse me, but this is the language of the time, Negro Day. Now, John Waters' version of the dance show is slightly different. It's named The Corny Collins Show, and our heroine is Tracy Turnblad, played by Ricky Lake, a large girl who gets her way onto TV, becomes an overnight fan favorite, and starts dating Link, a totally sexy Elvis clone. That's Michael St. Gerard, who actually did go on to play Elvis four times. Divine plays Tracy's mom, Edna. Jerry Stiller is her dad. Leslie Ann Warren is her sheltered best friend, Penny. And Colleen Fitzpatrick is her biggest rival on the show, a snobby blonde named Amber. And we can't forget Amber's parents, two stuck-up racists who own the local theme park, Debbie Harry and Sonny Bono. But even as we're watching Tracy stick up for the big girls... John Waters keeps on drawing our attention back to the black residents of Baltimore, who start off the film being pushed into the margins and then rise up as the film continues to become the movie's main point. Hairspray was released on March 7th, 1988, and it became the biggest hit of John Waters' career. That's a title it actually still holds, because as John Waters loves to joke, he made it in Hollywood, and then he slid back down to the underground. But right now, John is 77 years old, and I would say right on top of the zeitgeist again. He's got this amazing new exhibit in his honor at the Academy Museum in L.A. It is called John Waters, Pope of Trash. It's going to be open until August 2024, so you have a chance to go see it. 
And he just this month got his star on the Walk of Fame. And at the ceremony for him getting his star at the Sidewalk Walk of Fame, he said, now I'm closer to the gutter than ever. I mean, John Waters is just such a special person to me. He is the cult film daddy for movie lovers who are weirdos across multiple generations now. He is definitely the filmmaker who most shaped me. I'm a child who watched Hairspray on repeat, not knowing anything about the guy who made it, and then wound up dragging her high school friends to go see Pink Flamingos in the theaters and was then told by her best friends she would never, ever get to pick the movie ever, ever again. So yes, I love you, John Waters. And yes, it is apropos that the number one song on the charts that weekend of March 7th, 1988 is a movie about a big old daddy. It's George Michael and Father Figure. Paul, I have been so excited and so nervous to talk to you about a movie that you have not seen. That means so much to me. So much to me. I don't even know why I owned this on VHS, which one of my parents made that decision. I know I listen to the soundtrack every single day for most of my life. My goodness, this this is huge in, in the creation of me and all that I am. And now you're seeing it for the first time and I'm very nervous. Well, I want to be supportive of you and I want to be supportive of our friendship. And I understand as we've done films on this show that I've watched that have been a part of my development in in a way, like the movies that define me, that there are certain things that when you come into it fresh and you see it with different eyes, I'm not going to resonate with the things that you did when you first saw it because it's, it's a part of you. Karate Kid is a part of me, right? Hairspray is a part of you. I was surprised at how John Hughes it was and how not John Waters it is. And I was debating this thing where I'm like, is this a good John Waters movie or is this a good movie? Because it doesn't really feel to me like what I know of John Waters. Yeah, he's kind of hiding in plain sight, right? Or the way that he explains the movie now, well, I'll let him explain it. You need to prepare sneak attacks on society. Hairspray is the only really devious movie I ever made. The musical based on it is now being performed in practically every high school in America. And nobody seems to notice it's a show with two men singing a love song to each other that also encourages white teen girls to date black guys. Pink Flamingos was preaching to the converted, but Hairspray is a Trojan horse. It snuck into middle America and never got caught. You can do the same thing. I mean, that's kind of the most subversive thing about it. Like, he thinks of it as like a sneak attack. But is it a sneak attack for 1988? Or are we hitting the same thing culturally in 1988 that he is talking about in the 60s? I mean, honestly, when I watch this movie and I see Debbie Harry and Sonny Bono show up to, like, start a riot by having bombs in their hairs, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is also the present. Like, we're going to call things race riots when it's the white people that we see in this film doing the violence, hitting the people, like, starting the problems and then pretending to be scared of everyone. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, looking at this movie from 2023, that's the only reference point I have. It is kind of interesting that John Waters uses this budget, uses this moment to bring you into a quote unquote, like typical Hollywood movie about this time and then forces you to see what actually is going on outside of this bubble, this Hollywood bubble. Because I think a lot of movies often are you know, focus on white families and, you know, back to the future, you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, more than three black people in that movie. I'm not counting the band. Right. And if you actually look at it and you look at Baltimore, which is a city that, you know, white people are the minority there. And I love how it embraces it because the Hollywood version is very like patronizing. And I feel like you even see that in the movie when, you know, when uh, she comes on the show and she performs, it's like it's in this one little moment. And I, I love the way that it gets you on the right side without it being preachy. I don't I think when you think about this movie, you're not thinking like, oh, this is going to be an interesting movie about race and cultural appropriation. But there it is. But it comes in in a very Hollywood way. I don't know. It's a really interesting balancing act. When I look at it, I'm more impressed with it. Because it's like, well, how did he do that? Yeah, his running joke about Hairspray even today is that there are racist people who like this movie because they don't realize that it's about racism. I want to do this movie right now, actually, because we had just done a Douglas Sirk movie. And I feel like these two films are just so much in conversation with each other about, like, how do you tell one story that's actually a trick mirror where you're telling a different story? You know, where you're telling a more complicated story where you actually don't believe everything that you're putting on screen. Because this movie itself is kind of a trick, you know, and I feel like it's letting you know that from the very first montage. I mean, because you're right, you're behind the scenes at WZZT watching all the white kids get ready for the Corny Collins show. And what you're watching is like white kids primping themselves, like prepping, putting falsies in their breasts, you know, hairspraying their hair until it doesn't move at all licking their lips as they're like spraying their hair because it's so erotic to them. It's so sexy. It's all this idea of appearance, right? Like, what are we right. putting on screen and what do we think that we're watching? And what he does that's such a trick is he's trying to get you to notice what he's not showing you. Because the Hollywood version of this today, if it was made today, would just be like, and it was an integrated show. That's just how it was. And we're like, what? No. He, like, he wants to tell you that it wasn't and he wants that to sneak up on you. And he does it in ways that are just so subtle. Like, he doesn't go out there and completely say right away, like, hey, anybody notice the irony that all of these kids are dancing to black artists and we don't have any black artists out there that we have on on screen and that there's nobody black actually out there dancing to this music? He gets that point across by having, like, Debbie Harry yell at her daughter for requesting a black artist. 
You had three good close-ups today, period. Why can't you dance up front where the voters can see you? Leave me alone, Mother. I have a pimple. And you had to choose a color record as your favorite song, didn't you? That's nice for the neighbors. You got something against Connie Francis? Shelly Fabre? I love Shelly oh. Fabre. Amber! Amber, are you listening to me? We have to have a little talk. You know, if your father is forced to integrate Tilted Acres, we're out of business. So at least act white on television. Leave me alone, Mother. Shake a Tail Feather is a wild song. It's got a good beat and you can dance to it. I think on some level, what this movie is doing is like, pop music can be very surfacy, right? We just listen to it, but we're not actually looking or going deeper about it. Like, we want our pop music to be a certain way, but when it comes to like actual issues, we don't want to be invested in it, right? And that's something that I think as a culture, we're dealing with in a major way right now. And we've been dealing with it in the last couple of years. And he's in front of that, right? He's in front of that going like, you want all of this stuff, but you want to have a blind eye to the rest of it as well. It seems very pure because the tone of this movie, there are camp elements to it, but I think it's playing, like it's playing more in the wheelhouse of a Leave it to Beaver. But it's like a very special episode of Leave it to Beaver. It's more pointed, but it still has like a soft touch to it. It's like, what if Leave It to Beaver, what if like the Beave went to a part of town where he was the only white person there? Like it has an energy where it's like it's still being treated pretty lightly. Yeah, exactly. Like what I respect so much about this film is like he said that he wanted to make a movie that was a subversion both of kind of a a John Hughes type teen movie. Yes. And also a movie that was a subversion of how we handle movies about race, which is. We kind of simplify them. We're like, here's the good people. Here's the bad people. This is how it works. And he is making a film that's about how easy it is to not even know what the right thing is, where like the people are sort of just going along with the status quo. And he does it in the most subtle way. Like there's kind of this repeated thing of like being outside the TV studio, seeing, you know, young black kids who want to be on the show saying like, hey, can we get in? You hear them get rejected. And then what you also hear is a tiny moment of like Tracy for Turnbull being like, that's not fair. Oh, but the line's moving. I guess I better go inside. What's the problem, officer? This is a white establishment. Oh, come on. Listen, we just came to dance. That's not fair. Open your purse, please. So it's like everybody in this town, you know. They're not villains. They're not heroes. They're not doing the right thing necessarily. They're like touchy. They're worried about what other people think. Tracy Turnblad doesn't start this movie being a hero. And I think that's how most people are. It's not like they are doing anything wrong except for not opening their eyes to the full story, right? It's easier not to do that. I was thinking a lot about John Waters, and I don't know that much about him. You know, I know a little bit. And I was watching this great interview with him on Letterman. And I was like, oh, should I cut a clip of this? I was like, no, I think you should actually watch it because Divine comes out and performs. And then they both sit on the couch and Letterman is truly apoplectic. He doesn't know what to say to Divine. Like he literally asks Divine, like, what are you? Are you are uh, her? Like it's a a complete breakdown on Letterman's part, which is great. And I think that like, you know, Letterman also is having Divine on his show. So that's awesome as well. But then he talks to John Waters and John Waters says this line that has stuck out with me. 
He's like, I just like spreading my cancer throughout America. And and Letterman's like, wait, 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 what do you mean? He's like, oh, my comedy, my can- that's my cancer. It's kind of spreading. And I feel like that spread is what we're seeing here. It's a slow spread until all of a sudden the movie's really all about this, but you don't see it sneak up on you. And I, I love that that's how he views what he does. Like a cancer, the spread of cancer to me feels like it happens, you don't notice it, and then all of a sudden it's there. I don't know, there's something about that description of his own art form that really speaks to this movie. Yeah, it is so funny about it, because like this is around the time where he gets invited to go on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And that's basically how he even talks about his own house. You know, to call yourself like the Pope of Trash, to be like, I am the gutter man. And then to say like, this is what I do. I want to bring this to you. I want to bring this into your home. It's a fine line between parody and the macabre. A jar of dirt from the lawn of mass murderer John Wayne Gacy sits next to polio vaccine. This is my bedroom. Here we have some further trinkets from hell. Edith's shoes that she wore in female trouble. A John Waters doll that was made for me that, yes, like I used to, smokes. How repellent. Other eclectic collectibles include a plate of rubber noodles and pictures of yet more heroes. From Paddy McCormick, child villain of the Bad Seed, Big Bad Captain Hook, and the Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz, you kind of get the feeling John Waters was never destined to write Heidi. And then to go one step further and be like, and you know what? And I'm going to make it as a PG movie. I'm not even going to have a curse in it so that your kids are going to be exposed to my trash. That is so marvelous. I mean, to have a way of bringing Divine into the house of young kids like me and to have Divine show the range of everything Divine was on screen. I mean, Divine, they always say, like, he designed Divine out of the sense of, like, rage, right? You know, Divine was his neighbor, Glenn, and, like, Waters will kind of be really consistent. He's like, Glenn didn't want to be a woman. Glenn just didn't want to be Glenn. Glenn wanted to be something else. And he was, like, overweight. He was a nerd. He was kind of feminine. All the students, all the teachers abused him so much when he was younger that he created Divine, this, like, figure that wasn't anything like him, as this way of just scaring people, specifically scaring, like, hippies, specifically scaring the establishment, just creating this figure who was, like, unapologetic and took up so much space and made everybody nervous. And again, by this point, famous for eating dog shit on camera, famous for doing crazier stuff than that in in, in these movies, famous for just like being so in your face, famous at this point for being like a pop star in Europe who made some of the weirdest pop songs I've ever heard and didn't even try to sing nicely. I mean, Divine was a person who made people nervous. And that was like his job, basically, was to go in and make people nervous. And then in this movie to be like, I've been making people nervous for basically 20 years. And you know what? Now I'm going to make kids love me. And how fucked up is that? And I think what is really interesting, and you can speak to this probably more than I can. But, you know, I think the other John Waters films that I've been exposed to are much more campy. And yes, it is 
interesting that Divine is playing the mom of Ricky Lake in this, but he's not playing it campy. There is a grounded performance here. Like, obviously, Divine is going to be Divine the actor any which way you cut it. But I do believe that there is, like, a heart there, a real centering that doesn't feel like, oh, this is like we're doing a crazy thing. It's like, I, again, Divine said on Letterman, I'm a man who specializes in playing women's roles. And I believe in that movie, that's what we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, if anything, at the very beginning of the film, Divine's character, Edna the mom, is kind of the voice of the establishment. Young ladies, I've had just about enough of this screeching music. Mother, we're watching the Corny Collins show. Penny, your mother called all frantic. She said you were punished. I'm always punished. And Tracy, I have told you about that hair, all ratted up like a teenage Jezebel. Oh, Mother, you're so 50s. Uh, Tracy's flamboyant flip is all the rage, Miss Edna. Jackie Kennedy, our first lady, even rats her hair. But Tracy ain't no first lady, are you, Tracy? No, sirree. She's a hair hopper. That's what she is. I mean, Edna's not cool. Like, Edna is nervous about what people think about her. Edna, you know, we see Edna, like, in frumpy house dresses. She's not trying to be glamorous. She's got, like, bobby pins in her hair. You, you even sense that, like, Edna has a lot of self-loathing about the way that she looks that she kind of puts on her daughter. Like, when she sees her daughter on TV, she's just like, oh, she's fat. Oh, no. Well, see, she's already getting close-ups. Does she get paid for this? Big as a house. I think she looks pretty, Edna. And you're watching Edna kind of come into her own through this movie, too. Like, get the confidence of being her daughter, a person who sees the 60s as, like, a new a new decade. You know, as a person who, like, is allowed to kind of consider herself attractive. I will just say that this is kind of a relatable element because I think we do pick up our parents' own fears, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you must worry about that as a dad. Like, you don't want to give your kids your own hangups. And I definitely grew up in a house with a mom who was very worried about her weight. And every single thing that we had in our house to eat was, like, non-fat this, non-fat this. I never tasted milk that wasn't skim until I went to college. I never had real mayonnaise. I never ate anything that was real because every I'm, you know, I have a mom who was like an 80s and 90s snack wells diet, no fat, no salt, Melbourne toast, mom, yeah. right? Oh Everything was like chemicals. And, you know, I'm sure she didn't want me to like grow up as a kid being nervous about weight or be feeling like eating is like torture. But that kind of stuff like gets steeped into you. You know, and you realize from what your parents are worried about uh, in themselves is something you should worry about, too. And so definitely when I watched this movie as a child, like I wasn't really thinking about race at all. I was thinking about like, wow, that's the first time I've ever seen a girl on a screen who looks like Ricky Lake, who gets the hottest guy in town, loves her. They make out constantly. He's always shoving his face in her boobs and he never cares about her size. You know, like everybody else is like making fun of her, but her boyfriend's like, she's sexy and she carries herself like she's sexy. And like there for decades of my life, that's how I saw this movie is like, that's so transgressive because even that is like incredibly transgressive. Well, but here's the thing. We didn't even talk about how that is transgressive. And I guess why my reaction to this movie is maybe a little bit more muted than people who grew up with this movie is we have finally gotten there. So watching this for the first time, not it's not perfect, obviously, but 
I'm not as shocked by some of these choices. And again, if I put myself in 1988, I'm going to see it in a different way. Like, but I understand like in that time, like I'm not even clocking that Ricky Lake is a bigger girl. I mean, we, we were told that, but it's not even a part of my, like what you just described there. I'm not even taking that in. Wow. Cause like, I remember watching this and being like, she's a bigger girl. And you know what? She's not even apologizing for it. She's like, yeah, I'll do an ad for bigger girl clothes. And you know what? I'm going to eat like a a hostess pink snowball as I'm doing it. Fatty, fatty, two by four. Can't get through the dressing room door. Hi, Mr. Pinky, owner of the Hefty Hideaway, 3311 Eastern Avenue. Are you big bone? Got a glandular problem, but you still want the glamour? Don't worry about it. The Hefty Hideaway has got it all. This beautiful ensemble being modeled by our lovely Tracy is available in sizes 12 to 26. You heard me right. You need a girdle? We got them. Even got large size shoes for that continental clementine look. Whoa, my darling. All the prices you can afford. Big is beautiful. Hefty Hideaway, Eastern Avenue. You come on in today, you'll be awful glad you did. (laughs) That's our little baby. She's prettier than Elizabeth Taylor. And I mean, I still find that brave, but you're right. Like, we, things have changed. John Waters always says, like, when he first put out the casting call for this, he said he made a point of not saying you wanted a fat actress. You know, he's a like he's a person who says, I never use the word ugly. I never use the word unattractive. You know, I don't believe in that. He's like, I believe that you should exaggerate what people are against and then make that a style, you know, to redefine beauty. And that's how you win. But the casting call for this, because it was kind of implicit that it needed to be a larger girl. He said only seven actresses even auditioned, you know, in in the 80s, because it was like that much of a third rail. Like it was that loaded to go on screen and be larger. But then they did Hairspray again in the 2000s. He was like, we had thousands and thousands of people. Everybody wanted to do that. You know, like things, it broke through. It was allowable. That's fascinating. And it's interesting because I also feel like the remake of Hairspray, what I've seen, and I didn't watch the whole thing because honestly, I couldn't stomach it. Based on my limited watching and jumping around, it felt like it lost a lot of the transgressiveness that this movie had. And it just became the edges really came off of it. I don't know. It just seems simple or less interesting. I, I like. I couldn't quite understand why. I know people love that musical version of it, maybe because it is simpler, maybe it, because it is prettier. Like, there's something ugly about this movie, too. Like, and this time period. Not, like, with the people, but just the colors and things like that. And then I think Hairspray, the musical, really pops it. And, and it's the same story, but it just feels like it lacks... I don't know, like, the commentary of it all. Yeah, it's hard. Like, I only managed to see the entire movie once because I realized the original is just too close to me. You know, right. like, I can't let it go. And so I, I, I'm i glad that there are people who deeply love the new Hairspray, which has made more money, I think, than all of John Waters' films put together. I'm glad that, 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 like, it has a cultural relevance still because of that. To me, part of my problem watching it is just, like, I don't like the songs of the new one that much because I'm so deeply in love with like the original music that we hear here. So then to hear songs that sound more just Broadway to me, like like here, this is, you know, John Travolta as as Edna singing about his makeover. Hey, Tracy, hey, baby, look at me. I'm the cutest chickie that you ever did see. Hey, Tracy, hey, baby, look at us. Where is there a team that's happening? Fabulous. I let go, go, go of the past now. Say hello to this red carpet ride. Yes, I know that the world's spinning fast now. 
Tell on the bridge to the step aside. Your mama's welcome in the 60s. That just doesn't capture the feel of the 60s to me. The way that like hearing the genuine articles, the genuine songs do, you know, and there's everything already in the genuine songs. There's a certain type of Broadway sound that just does not gel. The authenticity isn't quite there and the grime has been washed away a little bit and everything feels more on the nose. Like, I don't know why in the new Broadway musical you have to say, you know, not only is Edna Turnblad like large, she's also agoraphobic. Like, okay, right. sure. Yeah. I guess she's agoraphobic. Why? Why does she have to, like, why do we need to add things onto it, make it more complicated? Why does there have to be some whole subplot where, like, the Debbie Harry character, you know, is also now the head of the studio, so she's, like, the main racist, and she's, like, hitting on the dad, on Tracy Turnblad's dad, or confusing things. It, that all feels unnecessary, because to me, it feels like there's so much here, and it's weird to use this word about hairspray, that is subtle. Right. Yes, I agree with, and this is what I'm talking about, like this idea, like when we think about this movie, it's odd to think this is a John Waters movie because there is something about it. Yes, there are these pops of craziness, like you talked about earlier with the bomb and the and the beehive hairdos, and but it's goofy subversive instead of like disturbing subversive. That was the thing I always assumed with John Waters is like, Oh, he is like a gross out guy, right? Like this is like it reminded me of like what Harmony Corinne, but funnier is the way I kind of pictured John <laughs> Waters in my head, right? And what I think this movie kind of puts into focus for me is that John Waters is an interesting guy, a smart guy who, yes, is weird, but still has all the heart and wants to make this thing. He's kind of just like another version of John Hughes. Like John Hughes is a smart music guy. John Waters is a smart music guy. John Hughes is into very niche kind of cool elements that are hip. And so is John Waters, but he's a little bit more in the underground. So when you look at John Hughes as being more Frank Capra-esque, it's just because maybe the stuff that he's into is more acceptable, whereas the stuff that John Waters is into is just a little bit weirder, but it's still coming from that same place of heart, or at least this movie is. Well, yeah, I mean, John Hughes is going to be like, oh, man, I'm going to make a film about an outcast and she's going to be such a nerd. And here it is. It's Molly Ringwald. And you're like, what? (laughs) You know, and and John Hughes is like, I'm going to make a film about an outcast. And you know what the funny thing is? When Tracy Turnblad shows up, everybody loves her. And what we see is Tracy Turnblad is marvelous. She charms people as soon as she opens her mouth. Would you ever swim in an integrated swimming pool? I certainly would, Iggy. I'm a modern kind of girl. I'm all for integration. Aren't you a little fat for the show? That's enough, Amber. I would imagine that many of the home viewers are also pleasantly plump or chunky. Oh, come on. The show's not filmed in CinemaScope. You're out of line, Amber. That's almost like the extra level of subversion. Like, what if these things that you think of are problems? So much that, like, John Hughes wouldn't even cast a larger person in the part like that. What if they're not problems? What if it's all in your head? You know? Right. And then it like twisted on you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. To me, I think like so much of this movie is a joke on the audience. And yet, at the same time, I don't think that John Waters is holding anything back. I don't feel like I watch this movie and I see that John Waters is playing a game of not saying everything he wants to say. I feel like he's saying everything he wants to say, but just in such a subtle way. That's, again, why I watch this movie. And I love watching it now in kind of the context of us talking about Douglas Sirk. I mean, because John Waters knows Douglas Sirk, loves Douglas Sirk. Polyester, the movie that he does with Divine right before this, which is, you know, yeah, famous for having a scratch and sniff card that I feel like every time I've scratched it, I've never smelled anything except for like maybe rubber and sort of a, I guess it's supposed to be a fart. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But he does that whole movie and it is basically giving Divine the opportunity to be a Douglas Sirk heroine. I'm knocked up and that's that. Who did this to you? Bobo, the man I love. I'll never allow you to marry him. Marry him? Are you kidding? I'm getting an abortion and I can't wait. I cannot take another heartbreak. I just cannot take it. Do you think I'm made of steel, Miss Lulu? And it leans into what I love about Divine, which is when Divine plays a woman, he's not making a joke about being a woman. He's not being a fake woman or an artificial woman. He's not being like a over-the-top sassy woman, you know? He's representing being a woman through a lens. He just makes you sort of watch what being a woman is in a way that I find fascinating. I mean, the way that he speaks divine sounds just soft. He's not, he's not putting on an act. You know, the way that divine talks here is basically how divine talks when he's getting interviewed. This is divine doing a conversation with the guy who plays Corny Collins, the actor who plays Corny Collins, um, Sean Thompson. Sean is interviewing him about like what he used to create his breasts. And you can hear just divine's real voice. What you you have a little bit of you were telling me this one day on the set you have a little bit of a difficulty with or with deciding what you're actually going to make uh, breasts out of right? Oh yeah, we went through a lot of that because I wanted them to jiggle properly. Yeah, you all, that's often a problem, you know. Yeah, you well, if to... you watch women's breasts a lot, you can tell who's, who has silicone and who's got jiggles. Yeah, <laughs> and I didn't particularly want the just big solid breasts. Yeah. Because I've worked with actresses that have those. When they lay down, they just stick up in the air. You know? and they sound like that. Yeah, and yeah. So I looked for the white jiggle material, and uh, we filled these uh, big pads with um, lentils. Right. And of course, to get them big enough to be in proportion to my size, I was like a 65 double D. And there wasn't all in my back. Yeah. So. And so I'm on this plane going to a personal appearance in this little black sheath dress, you know, and all of a sudden I had horrible chest pains. I thought, oh no, I'm in coach and I'm gonna die, I can't believe it. (laughs) In this cheap black dress. 
Well, you can also hear in that clip that unnerves me is this is divine talking about feeling pains in his heart and attributing it to his breasts, to the weight of the breasts that he's carrying. And then not knowing that within the year, he's going to be dead of a heart attack at 42, which is just one of probably the most painful ironies of this. Like he dies eight days after Hairspray is released in theaters. On a road trip to promote the film. Yeah, he died here in L.A. He died here in L.A. He was actually also going to be shooting like an episode of Married with Children in the morning. I think he was going to play like Al Bundy's mom, maybe, or Peg Bundy's mom. Oh, wow. He was about to break big, right? Like Divine had been terrifying people for decades being the guy who ate dog poop, a thing he could never escape, right? And now he's in Hairspray, really acting, doing two parts. Yeah. About to become, I think, mainstream for the first time. And he dies before he gets there. And winds up, I would say, resurrected only through people watching Hairspray on repeat and also being used as the model for Ursula the Sea Witch in The Little Mermaid. That's Divine staying alive. That movie comes out the year after he dies, the year after Hairspray. That's Divine getting to be registered in the culture. There's a bittersweet quote that John Waters has about Divine passing. You know, he says, like, after you've worked hard your whole life and finally succeeded— I think you deserve more than two weeks to enjoy it. And when you look at it like that, that's really what happened. It it really is like this cultural phenomenon that you're talking about, divine mist, all of it. And I'm personally upset, not that divine couldn't break big as much as this collaboration between, you know, this director and actor couldn't see the future as well. And I would love to have seen how divine also evolved and maybe honestly what that would have done culturally as they both got bigger together it's it's kind of like the john belushi of it all like what would have happened if john belushi stayed alive you know what like this force this force of nature you can't take your eyes off of that is multi-talented and this cultural icon like what if we got a little bit more time with them how would they have changed the culture how would they have maybe even pushed a boulder up the hill a little bit quicker I think that's such a beautiful point. You're right. Because there there really has not been another divine. No. You know? Like, I mean, you could say like a RuPaul. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's a tricky comparison because it's not really right because RuPaul's not yeah. like an actor either, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think divine had the extra edge of wanting to make you uncomfortable. Right. You know? I think RuPaul has done amazing things about kind of like blazing a trail, becoming a figure that everybody sort of loves and admires, becoming like this elder statesman, getting into middle America the way this film, the way Hairspray kind of did, worming your way into middle America and fighting for acceptance by being loved, right? Right. And I feel like he did fantastic things, continues to do fantastic things for that. You know, I think so much of how the needle has moved on like LGBTQ acceptance is because of people like Rue. Divine, though, was like, I'm here and also fuck you if you're scared of me, right? Yeah. Which is different. Divine was like, face being afraid of me. You know, I want to make you afraid. Like, I want to make you uncomfortable. I mean, John Waters, I think of him as this guy. He's kind of unsparingly truthful about what he sees, even if his movies seem so large and funny and, and ridiculous. Like, you know, but the year that Divine died, he already was able to just kind of say flat out, They will never say it to my face, but a lot of studio execs will be relieved that the next time I have a project, they won't have to deal with Divine. Because even after all of these years, he still scared them. Well, it's interesting because I I was going down a little bit of a rabbit hole about Divine as well. And, you know, he talks about 
the difference, and I just want to go back to it for one second with RuPaul and Divine, right? And he was saying that, you know, one of the reasons why RuPaul is acceptable by the middle class is that he has a great look outside of drag as well. You know, and most drag queens don't really focus on that. And he goes on to say, like, Divine wasn't trans, didn't want to be a woman. He wanted to be Godzilla and Elizabeth Taylor put together. And <laughs> I mean, how perfect he, is that, right? It's That's amazing. It. it was like a character that he wanted to be that was hired to act. It's almost very much, in my mind, I think of Divine the way that Andy Kaufman led his life. What am I watching here? Who is this? Because Andy Kaufman, to a certain extent, like, we don't know who Andy Kaufman is. Like, is he Latka? Or is he that guy who sings with Mighty Mouse? Like, it, there's a line. Like, and it's interesting when you have these people who are like, no, this is how I want to be seen. I want to be seen as I am divine, higher divine. And I love that like John Waters has never even strayed from kind of re representing the path that they were on, right? Like right. I played that clip of one of his graduation speeches earlier, which is where he's like talking about how hairspray is the most transgressive thing he ever did. And he's speaking at RISD, you know, the art school. Yeah. And he ends his speech by being like, go out and absolutely do stuff that's disturbing. Contemporary art's job is to wreck what came before. Is there a better job description than that to, to aspire to? Here's another trigger warning and <laughs> pardon her signing. Um, go out in the world and fuck it up beautifully. <laughs> D design clothes so hideous that they can't be worn ironically. Horrify us with new ideas. Out, outrage outdated critics. Use technology for transgression, not lazy social living. Make me nervous. And I mean, what a beautiful mantra to be still clinging to when everything seem, right now seems to be like, what will everybody want? What's the mass appeal? You know, and 100%. I, I want to fight against that constantly. But this is like the, the, I was having this conversation the other day about Adult Swim. Like the old Adult Swim was amazing because it was run by this guy, Mike Lazo, who was this weird eccentric dude who just like cool shit. Like he saw a video of Eric Andre and he's like, I want to make that, make that into a show. You know, like he let me make an infomercial, you know, that aired at 3 a.m. that paralleled what it was like to watch like hotel television. Like, and UCB, when I came up in UCB, like they, I think people use this term badly, but people are like, it's like a punk rock comedy or it's, you know, this comedy is like a punk rock vibe. It's like, it's not that. It was like when I started out doing comedy, it was like we couldn't be booked into the Carolines or the the Groundlings or the set. Like there's a whole institution there that we were not a part of. So we got to make our own weird shit and get people to come and see our stuff. And there's a lot to be said for just failing and also finding success in exploring your weirdest things. Yeah. And I feel like we don't have time for that anymore. I think that, you know, there people can find these little moments, but it's like it there's a metric attached to it now. Did you sell out? Did you get enough views? Did anyone watch it? You know, it's like and it's like, well, it's not always about that because sometimes it's about you got to do this thing and you may have just infected a, a small amount of people. Success isn't measured by risk taking as much anymore. I feel like there was a, a a moment where you could do a lot more or you could fail and not be 
considered a failure, if that makes sense. No, I love that. I mean, my God, you're like speaking so much to the heart of what it's been like to be a journalist in the last 15 years, which is everything is now metrics. Who clicked on that article and who didn't click on that right. one? Right. And like, it's affecting everything. You can't even review the weird stuff as much for like blogs that exist only on clicks because if nobody's heard of a weird movie, they're not even going to click on your article. So like critics can't even write about the weirder stuff because they think maybe they're going to lose money if they don't just cover all the big films, right? The fact that you can measure what is successful is just making the most boring stuff successful. And then it's becoming like a cancer that's destroying what I think art is. You know, like there's a movie that just came out actually that, that I think is, it was a UCB New York stage show, right? Dick's mm-hmm. the Musical. Oh, I don't know if that started in you. That I'm sure yeah. it probably did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It started in UCB New York in like the in like the mid 2000s. I mean, uh, if there is a John Waters bone in the body of anybody listening to this, please go see Dick the Musical. If you want a John Waters bone in your body that sounds like a John Waters joke that he would make, also if that's you, go see Dick the Musical. Just go see Dick the Musical anyway. Like it is, it is out there to shock people, and it is so funny. And it is about just in the briefest say, I'll say it's about like. Two identical twins performing a parent trap situation on their parents who are played by Nathan Lane and Megan Mullally. And that is all I want to tell you because every single second of there is it's just like insane. I'm a little bummed out that it will exist in an era where we'll be like, well, what did it make at the box office and who went to go see it? It's an A24 musical, by the way. But like the point of things is to infect like hairspray right. infected like a cancer as a child. <laughs> Hairspray infected me. I'm weirder because I watched this movie as a child. Well, I think that that was the fun of, and I don't want to sound like this old fuddy day, but one of the fun things about like going to the video store was looking at a box on the shelf or a DVD case, and I'll update myself just slightly, and grabbing it and going like, "I'll, I'll check this out. And you'd find something or you'd hear something. And papers and blogs and things and are having a harder time even being those cultural arbiters because they don't consider like just infecting a handful of people to be successful. And that is a bummer. You know, it will continue to be a bummer. It's like, how do you get this stuff out? And you know what you're describing, this process of discovering what's cool. I mean, that is so mirrored in this movie itself, right? Because you're seeing Ricky Lake go home and watch the Corny Collins show and learn all her dances from there. And then what does she do in the movie? She learns where the dances are coming from. Casually. Nobody sits down and gives her a big old lecture about it, but she gets curious and her curiosity takes her to places like, you know, Maybell's record store, where she's learning the origin of where these dances are coming from real subtly. Nobody's lecturing you. You're just watching them. You're watching you're watching people do, you know, 1960s twerking. Basically, you're watching how filthy these dances are or can be and how wonderful that is and how different they are on the shows. And nobody's hitting you over the head with it. You're just going to where the art comes from, you know, and you're pursuing your curiosity and you're getting weird and you know you're terrifying people like Penny's mom. Don't anybody come near me. I'm armed and I'm prepared to protect myself. <laughs> God, mother. I know you were snatched, Penny. And I've come to save you. Oh, Papa Tooney, we got a loop. Don't you try any of your voodoo spells on me, you native woman. We're just dancing. Mrs. Pingleton, stop acting crazy. These are our friends. Don't act ignorant, Tracy Turnblad. Come on, Penny. Come on. Run. Run. Run for your life. 
And I mean, that is, isn't that wonderful that this is also a movie about the process of discovering that you are weird because she doesn't start the movie weird. Well, but also I think this is the story of John Waters, right? Because this whole movie was inspired by this essay, The Nicest Kids in Town, that Waters wrote for his book, Shock Value, right? Where he professed his love and obsession with all these dance crazes and the behind the scenes drama and gossip that he saw on like 1960s Baltimore television. Like, you know, it's like, this was his obsession. And and so much so, I think he was trying to like give his obsession to the studios. Did you know that when he was pitching this movie, he would perform like the roach and the bug, which are like the novelty <laughs> dances, right? Um, I mean, I know that like, when he was a kid, he won a dance contest. He won a twist contest dancing with one of the girls who was actually on the show. He never made it as like a full-time cast member. I, I, but I love that, right? I don't think he's telling a story about like, I need to like teach you a lesson. I think we're watching a story of a weird kid who loves these shows that is never going to be on these shows. And then because he loves them so much, he's doing actually research on like, who are these people? Or I want to get more of them. I feel like we're watching his exploration into his own passion. And I also think coming from Baltimore, you are always going to be like, he's a double outcast in Baltimore. I think, you know, it's like it, but Baltimore is also like a weird cultural things are happening there. It's not quite New York. It's not quite Chicago. It's not Boston. It's like, it's, it's in the middle of all. So you're getting some of all of the stuff. It's like this weird, it's a weird city. that's so close to every other big city, but less respected than all of them. And no offense, Baltimore. I like you. I'm just saying, but it's like, I think Baltimore, I don't think Baltimore even has a chip on its shoulder, but it is the outcast city. If you're going to look at cities, I think that's who you cast as an outcast. Yeah. I mean, like, as we were doing this movie, as I was preparing for it, I was thinking about our Grease episode, right? Right. right? Like, of course, yeah. thinking oh, about 100%. the Grease episode. But one of the things we were talking about that in there is, you know, I always struggled with Grease because I kept seeing the fact that, you know, Olivia Newton-John puts on the tight pants as, like, her giving in and being like, I'll change who I am for this guy. But in our conversation, I really kind of came alive to the idea that, no, it's about choosing to be a rebel, choosing to be a dangerous looking person in this time period and how she's rebelling against who she told she was supposed to be, this 1950s person. I mean, Greece is set in 1959. It's set like two, three years before this. I kind of struggle whether or not Hairspray is set in 1962 or 1963. It like keeps saying 1962 on the radio, but the car show is 1963. And then the little girl is quoting Martin Luther King. And that's like from 1963. So I don't even know. The 60s have not kicked off where things got dark. But just enough after 1959, after Greece, after Imitation of Life, that's the year that it's set too, where things are starting to change, where the ground is like getting shakier under everybody's feet. It's three years, but it makes such a difference, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. I mean, there. this is like, these are the moments where our nation kind of changed too, right? You realize that the budget for this movie, the, you know, this movie that was his biggest budgeted movie, most of it went to music rights. Oh, and they're so good. There's so, so many good. great things. And it, like, but like he did music over... Like, like having a place for people to get changed. Like Ricky Lake was like, they need me to do a change in the middle of the street. Divine did it. I was nervous to do it. Like, you know, it's like, this is, this is it. Like, you know, like it's all on the screen. Yeah. It's all on the screen for sure. There's so many things I want to talk about that still, but like one of the ones I want to say is there's a scene I love where like, where, you know, Tracy and her boyfriend and Penny and Penny's new boyfriend, Seaweed, They've all gone to, you know, to a dance that's all full of black kids. And they're listening to 
Toussaint McCall, this beautiful song, right? And like he actually gets the real Toussaint McCall to like come and lip sync his own song. And then they ditch the party to go outside and they're making out in the alley and it's super gross. And there's this beautiful scene that I can't quite figure out. So I wanted to talk about it with you where you're hearing Toussaint McCall sing inside the real one. And as you're outside, there's a man who, you know, he seems maybe homeless. He's like drinking from a bottle and he's singing the same song and it's echoing and he's singing it also just as beautifully. And it is a long scene. We're just going to play a bit of it. And I find it so spellbinding and I'm trying to articulate why. So I'll wait until you're home. Again, I'll love you, but I'm all alone. And oh, my darling. I don't know really where to start understanding why this scene is in this movie. This man singing the same song that we're already hearing. Except that it's beautiful and maybe it speaks to an idea of there's just talent in this world everywhere that's not getting used. I think there's something really interesting at play. That song is beautiful. I think it's there for a reason. And here's what I'll I'll say. Maybe this is too blown out. But continually, the city is shown as this scary place, right? Especially to white people. And I think that having this beautiful voice in the city is like, oh, we don't even go there to even see what they have. And it's not saying that, like, every white person is racist, but it's saying, like, you know, if you would ask them, they'd say no, but they also aren't going to go there and see what's going on. Like when you go in the record store there, it's great. It's fun. There's nothing about it that's scary. There's nothing about it that's weird. It's the exact same scene that you would see with a bunch of white kids, right? And I think that's so such a kind of a powerful statement. It's not like, hey, you don't belong here. Like they're, and in many respects, the white kids are welcomed in almost to a point where it's so funny because I think, <laughs> of course, they're not seeing, they don't want segregation. They don't even see a difference. And I think it, it's kind of personified with this scene uh, in the movie. This is so romantic. I wish, I wish I was dark skinned. Tracy, our souls are black, even though our skin is white. Oh, seaweed. Does seaweed will integration ever come? Oh, Penny. My, my little white lily. We're outcast from both societies. Black, white. Our love is taboo. Go to second. Go to second. That scene, it's happening right after the guy's singing. It's so... It's so worth trying to get my head around, right? Because it's like... A, honestly, one of the funniest things is like, basically, Tracy and her boyfriend, their operating MO throughout this movie is not necessarily we want to solve the world. It's like, we're really horny. And here's where we can be horny. Here's where we can make out. Like, that's yeah. what they're mostly focused on, like, sucking each other's tongues off. And then also the romance of it is turning them on. The fact that they're doing something on out of the ordinary is kind of part of what's hyping them up. But in this scene, I feel like I also hear John Waters saying, like, let's admit it that these kids are also kind of stupid. Right? Like, they're caught up in the moment, and they're not saviors. They're just, like, a little ridiculous, too. I I don't know. There's something interesting about this, because I think I can identify with it on some level. Like, I think there is something about the prudish culture of the 60s 
in white suburban America, right? Like, I think a lot of people have been brought up under like that umbrella, like this idea of like, no, we don't do this. We don't do that. Not to say that I think that when you're in a city, there's a lot more attitudes and energy and it's not as prude. It's not as prude sexually. It's not as prude from a point of view of sexuality, religion, whatever. It's all these different things that there's, it's a melting pot, right? So it's not like we have to live in this very uh, Episcopal or Catholic kind of straight and narrow path. And I think that that's, you know, I think that that's what they're first experiencing. Like, oh my gosh, we can do, you know, there's so much freedom here, just freedom to be who we are or what we want to be. But I also think as a kid, like I know I was this, and I think you see it all the time. It's like kids are and want to be what they love, right? And they want to talk like, and I think we we have this like idea of cultural appropriation is talked about a lot. And I think that that's what we're seeing in the kids a little bit. They're like, we're, we're black. It's like, okay, no, you don't, you're not seeing it. You don't get it totally. But the want is there. I think it's like a pure of heart, but also they're still kids. They're super naive. Right. And I think that that's, I think it's the right idea. Cause I could almost see John Waters as a kid feeling that. And then like understanding, oh, wait, wait, there's more. Like, as you get older, you understand that there's more. I mean, to me, it was sort of like, that's the way I felt when I was a kid. I wanted to identify that way. I felt it like, and because I, I have a, a narrow point of view, a worldview. I love how you're describing that. I think you're exactly right. And that makes me think of almost John Waters looking back on this, looking back on himself, looking back on figuring out who he was and kind of seeing like the pure of heart, dumb spirit that you want to protect, that you're proud of, that that's who you are. But you're also like, I've aged out of this a little bit. And in a way, he kind of corrects it just a touch in the next scene, right? Because up until this point in the movie, we've been like really on board with Tracy's revolution, right? And being like, she's the most modern person in this movie. Look how cool she is. She's calling out the principal and being like, I know what you're doing with special ed. You know, like I, you're lumping me with these outcasts that you have created. Once again, your hairdo is getting you in hot water. Didn't two weeks in hairdo detention have any effect? I happen to be the height of teen fashion. You're on a one-way ticket to reform school. Well, I'm afraid we're just going to have to change your home room. Starting today, you report to class 10D, room 108. Special ed? Yes, Miss Turnblad, special education. And she has been so right and so with it. And then he does that little twist on us. We're immediately right after this. They're running from their parents. They wind up in that kind of beatnik den with Pia Zadora and Rico Kasich. And for the first time, somebody in the movie says, you're not as cool as you think you are. I'm an integrationist. We shall overcome someday. Not with that hair, you won't. You look like a hair hopper to me. I mean, your hair is really uncool. How do you get your hair so straight and, and so flat? With an iron, man. I play my bongos, listen to Odetta, and then I iron my hair, dig. I mean, that hits you, right? Because you're you've been you've been tricked into being like, no, that's the coolest hair. That's right. the coolest hair. And you're like, oh no, something else is coming, and this hair is actually not cool. Yeah, well, this movie is constantly pulling back the curtain, right? It's like, you know, we are in our little bubble and this is cool. Then you pull back one curtain. Oh, actually. We're not cool at all. And then actually there's another <laughs> curtain actually below that. You're not cool. And that's kind of the, what I'm talking about. And this is great that you kind of brought this up because I'm seeing it now clearer. John Hughes was the first curtain. John Waters is the second curtain. 
Okay, if that makes like sense. That. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> it's one step below and there always is going to be another curtain to open. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, and then that's life. Right. Like the kids that we think are so cool and their parents are like screaming and whining and all freaked out. They act exactly like their parents as soon as Pia Zadora brings out a joint. Let's do some reefer. We'll get high and I'll iron the chick's hair. Reefer? Drugs? Loco weed. When I'm high, I am Odetta. Let's get naked and smoke. Cool. Don't breathe it in. You'll be addicted. The latest is the later. Much later. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through... I mean, that's hilarious because John Waters will be like, oh, yeah, I spent all of the 60s doing every single drug and I was on LSD and we were eating whatever we could get, whatever pills we could get. And like he's being like, they have a couple curtains to go, these kids. I lo- and I love that scene because, you know, you have Piazzadora reading Hal, Allen Ginsberg's Hal. And that is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I mean, it's just like because also I think that I understand culturally why that is crazy too like seeing that in, in 1988 you're like whoa what is this you know um yeah my dad used to always tell me that pia zadora was one of his favorite actresses and he was being funny but he was fascinated by just like the element this i mean the whole stereotype of pia zadora is like she was known as being the worst actress of all time yeah right fair or not i we've talked already on the show about how much my dad i guess my dad my dad must have been the one who bought me this DVD because he did have a weird streak. Like he he was the one who always made me watch um, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. I love that. The like early Pia Zadora movie. But yeah, he was always like Pia Zadora. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it, like she was the joke, right? It's sort of like uh, my Pia Zadora was like Zsa Zsa Gabor or like, um, uh, <laughs> you know, or like who is that woman who's a coochie coo? That was, you know, like Charo, uh, who's Charo. actually a badass musician and had to she, do the coochie coo just so everybody paid attention to her. You know, but I mean, but like there are these people that like just get like pigeonholed as like they're like the Fabios of our world. And, you know, I love that he cast her in this. She's definitely playing it up. I think she definitely plays it up. I, I love it. I love it. It works though. It kind of works because she's the most vanilla or known to be vanilla doing the harshest version of that world. And you have Rick Ocasek in that scene as well, you know, from the cars and it become, you know, Rick Ocasek, he's a legend, you know, but I love that those are the two representing like counterculture and even putting Rick Ocasek and her together is so bizarre. It's, it's as bizarre as putting Sonny Bono and Debbie Harry together. It's yeah. like, it's these amazing <laughs> pairings. It's like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Sonny Bono was running for mayor when he made this movie, running for mayor. And he was like, just promise you won't do anything that I will regret in my mayoral campaign. Oh my God. Which he won. I mean, honestly, Hairspray is kind of, now that we're talking about it, it's like what the Muppets were for me. It was my Mm. gateway into understanding who any of these people were. And it's funny because, you know, in 1988, I have a sense that like Sonny Bono wasn't cool. Pia Zadora was not cool. This is like almost casting John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, you know? They weren't cool and they became cool to me through this movie. And then they transitioned around and became elder statesmen of what was just interesting and weird. You know, and so now 
Debbie Harry is the coolest person I've ever known on earth, right? Like I think Debbie Harry is amazing. My boyfriend got to meet her last week. They did a little thing together and I'm so jealous. Whoa. He sent me pictures of him hugging Debbie Harry. And I was like, you get a hall pass with Debbie Harry. That it, no insult to Debbie Harry. I don't want to presume anything you feel like doing with anybody, but like no pressure, Debbie Harry, but like I would wow. allow it. I think well, now you're, you're, now you're like offering him up now. It went from being cute to now it's like, you're, you're giving you're right. her a pal. Uh, <laughs> but right. by the way, can I, can I also, as we're talking about like these other versions of cool and not cool, you know, can we just move over here for one second and talk about Amber Van Tussle, the, 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 you know, the villain, the heavy, who also is just, she's a normie. She's a normie. Who then, I mean, is vitamin C, is vitamin C who has probably the biggest, like for me, this song was very big in high school. You know, this idea, like the graduation song. When that song came out, I was like, that's the girl from Hairspray? Are you kidding right? me? Yeah. I know. It's so bizarre. And it's weird that she became like this pop, like this other thing too, a one-hit wonder, which is also what the, it's like, there's all these like, you know, like yeah. these weird turns. And then she transitioned actually into being like, I wonder how low-key influential she remains to be today, which might be pretty much. She's right now, I think one of the, Colleen Fitzpatrick, one of the people who's like in charge for deciding what songs are played on Netflix, I think. She has some sort of role in steering what the top musical songs are on Netflix. So, I mean, I don't know if she's responsible for, like, the reason that everybody is suddenly obsessed with running up that hill, you know? Oh, I mean, that that stranger... I mean, but maybe, because, look, she was doing this for a long time. She did this for Nickelodeon and all the sister cable channels from, like, 2012. So she gets onto Netflix in 2019, and her title is the best title. It is Executive in Charge of Music, Creative Production, Spectacle, and Events. Right? If you like Kate Bush right now and you're young, she might be the reason. And in a way that kind of makes her still the operative force of the Corny Collins show, somebody guiding culture. I mean, that's incredible. Well, because, I mean, by the way, she guided culture in the early 2000s when she basically was writing songs for Miley Cyrus. That's right. She wrote all of those songs. Yeah. And and for Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez. I mean, I want to say that John Waters' graduation speeches are some of the most inspirational things ever, but there is an argument that she has had more of an impact on graduations than he has. <laughs> but I also would say, like, what's interesting about her is she she is the Corny Collins of our now, in a way, behind the scenes. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think for a while, Ricky Lake became the populist version of John Waters because after this and after her like movies that she did with him, she has been in all of his movies. I think after this point, she became the face of suburban trash. You know, when she does the Ricky Lake show, you know, she basically takes that mantle and says like, Hey, let's talk about all the things we don't want to talk about and let's make it weird and let's make everybody uncomfortable. I think all of us agree that it is great to be with someone who is confident and sure of themselves. But what's it like hanging around someone who is way beyond confident? Someone who is downright conceited, pretentious, and even snobby. Please meet Kren. 
Friend says her friend Juanita is totally convinced that she is all that. And she's here today to tell Juanita that she is definitely not. How does Juanita act, Kren? Juanita is terrible, Ricky. She's absolutely terrible. She will not talk to anyone she feels is not cute. Basically, she feels they lower her property value. So um, if I don't comment on her look today, she'll, she'll be annoyed with me? Um, perhaps, or maybe she'll just shun you. Um, it depends on... Well, she depends, better not! I pulled that clip because I thought it was sort of a nice counterplay with what this movie is. You know, this movie is like, hey, why aren't we all hot? Nobody's actually called that ugly in this movie in a way that anybody believes. There is no such thing as set ugly in this movie. And so I find it fascinating that now she's that there was like an episode of Ricky Lake that was all about like, but no, let's really have people decide who is and who isn't hot. Well, I remember. Yeah. Remember that <laughs> show? Remember there was a whole show like that? Hot or not, oh, like I God. think it was like Lorenzo Lamas with a laser pointer pointing at women's asses and going like, not good. Oh, uh, good Lord. And then isn't basically that just the gem of what created Facebook, which has then destroyed modern society? I mean, there you go. By the way, can I just say <laughs> that uh, if you are longing for some Ricky Lake uh, remembrances, there is a great podcast called Raised by Ricky. They basically go back through Ricky Lake show interviews and it's like a retrospective of her show which is kind of cool i listened to one episode out of context just because it was her and john waters but i have not listened to any about the actual oh wow show but i will say john waters said something really interesting which is that ricky lake is the first person of any of his movies who just brought in this sense of like cheerful innocence you know that like this ricky lake this person that really gets introduced in Hairspray, the Hairspray is the movie that makes her, was the first time in any of his movies he had somebody just represent being happy and innocent and believing it and like owning it to her core and that that was like a new mood for him. That energy makes this movie different because Ricky Lake, like you mentioned earlier, comes in and auditions. Like she's okay with who she is. And I think Divine is okay with who he is, but it's scary. Ricky Lake isn't scary, right? And I think it's like this idea of working with people who are so confident that they can handle whatever you throw at them. And I think that the movie is raised up by the confidence of these performers in who they are. And that's really what the movie is about. The movie is about like, like what you like, find out more. Don't let people tell you what to do or who you need to be or how you have to be. Don't let like, the elders around you dictate your life. You get to make your own choices. And if that's going into the city, if that's, you know, having a rally, and, and it does start like a baby like this. It does start with these ideas, small ideas, and people will laugh at you and people will make fun of you, but you got to keep on going, going, going. Where these characters go would be really interesting. A revisitation of Hairspray now would be fascinating, you know, because of like, where, do, where did these characters go? Did they just fall back in or are they leading in a different way now? And there's something, I don't know, that I feel like it's an important message to your point that John Waters is giving to everybody. Be your weird self. Don't second guess yourself. Don't try to fit in. And by not trying to fit in, you will blaze a new path and things will change around you. And that's literally what this movie does. Uh, John Waters is doing it. The characters are doing it. And truly, uh, it's affecting society. Truly. And you know, there is something more optimistic about his version of it, which is what happens here in this film with the struggle to integrate Corny Collins happened in real life. You know, like there's a woman named Melva Scruggs 
who was like a young black teenager who lived in this town who wrote the Buddy Dean show a letter. And she was like, I want to be on your show. It was called Negro Day. And they had it once a month after the initial group was appeared. That was my that was my group. And of course, we told everybody at school and everybody knew that black kids were going to be on the show. So the day that we were on there, everyone was watching. So it was very exciting. Even though the show was on six days a week, the black kids got to appear much more infrequently. I thought we should be on there because we could dance too. <laughs> so that's why I wrote him a letter. And I guess he felt so too, but they never, they never had black and white students dancing together on the show. People picketed outside the WJZ studios where the show was held. Published reports say the station wanted to integrate the show. When Dean took it to a committee of white kids who appeared as regulars, they said no. Their parents wouldn't allow them on the show if that happened. And you know what happened? What? Uh, they never integrated the show. You know, it, it when they finally fought harder and harder for integration, um, when things got really intense, and there were, like, white kids sneaking into the black days in order to try to dance on camera and forcibly integrate the show. It didn't work. There were people who showed up with bomb threats, you know, saying, don't you dare integrate the show. The things that happened in Hairspray are actually not exaggerations honestly, of like the fight to try to integrate the Buddy Dean show. And it never worked. And when they couldn't integrate the show, the show finally shut down over these tensions. And so he allows this movie to have a, a little bit of a happier ending than he got, even though the tonal shifts of the end are so strange. I mean, it goes crazy. Kind of like he's telling you, this is all fictional. And I love that he's telling you through it, just through like the absolute confusion of what you're hearing and how your mood is like whiplashing back and forth. But that said, like, there's also something so gentle in how he looks at societal change here. You know, his movies look like sledgehammers, but when you really understand what's happening in them, when you're really paying attention, it's like divine goes from, you know, being like apathetic slash hostile towards race issues to being like, you know, that Amber girl makes me a little bit embarrassed to be white. I don't want to be on the side of her. She kind of sucks to like joining the NAACP by the end of this movie. But right. it happens so slowly to her that at any point in this movie, you could say she's wrong and she's doing it wrong. And now we'd be like, cancel her. She's dumb. Like your mom is not supportive of this. But you know what? There's a patience here and a gentleness. And John Waters doesn't cancel this character or make her mad. Right. He gives her the chance to grow. And I think that's probably a message that is important to hear, too. Two things can be true. We can turn on people, but we can also welcome them back in. And I think all good weirdos know that's an important part of our life because of somebody who's been shut, the, the door has been shut on so many times. Like they're saying, no, no, no. Like, yeah, like we'll welcome you back too. Like we know how hard it is to be out there. You're right. He reopens doors for people. He gives people a chance to walk through a door on their own. 
I totally, I totally agree. Um, oh, so Paul, I feel like I'm hearing some love in your voice for this movie. And I have to say it makes me happy. You don't I, you have know, to love it, it as much as I do. That's probably impossible for any living human being. You know what it was? It, like, I, I, I want to say it like very honestly. And because I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I feel like you're right. It does bump heads with the Cirque movie. I wasn't as connected or blown away by it as I thought or wanted to be because it's become so iconic. I was like, what am I missing? There's a lot under the surface, right? There's a lot there. I think that coming in and this year and seeing it, it's not as shocking to me. People got it though when Hairspray came out, right? I mean, people got this. Like it, like it was like it was it it wasn't like Douglas Sirk's movie. Like people got how subversive it was, or did people just get it on the level that I watch it, which is like, oh, this is like kind of a fun, light movie. It's fine. I think both. I think both. I mean, I believe him when he says that there were racist people who saw this movie and didn't get that it was about them. And I believe that it's actually even more complicated than that. There are people who just you know, let the status quo be who aren't aware that this movie is about all of us. Because I think that's that's a universal thing. Not all of us stand up and have the fight that we should at the moment that we should, because it's hard. It's really, really hard to do that. I agree. And I think that the best way to bring people in is to see yourself in everybody. And I, I think that you know, this myth of the 80s is like, oh, we're so far away from the 60s. But, you know, going back to what you said about John Waters' graduation speech, maybe we weren't. Actually, I know we weren't because we're still getting there, right? And it's sort of like, I think we always think, oh, we're so far away from that. But maybe we're not. And maybe we just think that we are. And I think a lot of the characters in this movie think that they are as well until it's put into their front yard or their television set, which is essentially their front yard. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we still are exactly the same way right now, honestly. I think there's such a tendency. I mean, think about this. In the 80s, my boomer parents, we solved racism. We solved discrimination against women. You're welcome. And I'm like, no, right. you had it. And it's really easy to feel that way again. And it's not true. And it'll probably never be true. It'll ne- I, I hate to say that, but it'll, we'll never probably have it all figured out. I mean, what a fun counterpoint. This and Greece, and people being nostalgic, and people looking back. I mean, both of these things even started as musicals. Like, remember Greece? We talked about this in the episode that Greece was actually was like a much harder, more dirty, filthy, subversive Broadway musical than it was when it became a movie. And then Hairspray, I guess, kind of did the reverse. So I love that it's like we keep looking back at the things that happened, and then we keep being like, "What on earth were we all doing? And how much Hairspray were we inhaling?" <laughs> well, you can't get any bit better than that, you know, and Amy talking about this movie, I think we both felt such a connection to Greece. And again, Greece, a movie that feels on its surface, very slight, but we actually found it was incredibly subversive. Take a listen. There's an energy to it that I feel like is undercutting a lot of stuff but also telling it as it is. And that's a crazy idea for a movie like Grease that's so kind of bombastic and bold. And there are some really interesting things in this movie. I don't know, that really kind of surprised me. It's not as sugar-coated fantasy as I thought it was going to be. It's a lot more pointed. I think it, it, I think it is kind of upending a conception of the 50s by actually showing you maybe a more realistic point of view. Yeah. I mean, it is saying, in essence, 
the people of the 50s, they were really into fucking and smoking. And, yeah. Or, or, or at least talking about it and pretending that they were. And they're doing it kind of first. I mean, like, technically in the 70s, we have all those like throwback things, you know, last picture show, like we were saying, and American Graffiti and Happy Days. Grease, the musical, predates those. Like it comes out in 1971, the same year as as the last picture show. But it it seems like because the film comes out later that it's like chasing the trend. But actually, Grease was kind of at the top of the trend. It just took seven years to become a movie. You can actually listen to the entire Grease episode. It's up. Just search Unspooled and Grease and you can listen to that. I think they're actually a good companion piece. I think they are good companion pieces. You know what? Let's keep this train going of talking about movies that I think are messing with audiences or getting kind of like polarized reactions because I can't think of a film that people had more fights about in the year that it came out than the one that we're about to do, which is Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street. Cannot wait. I know that so many people are excited for his latest film, one of his last films. He says he's only got about two more films in him. You know, this is kind of uh, the tail end. And it's amazing to think about all the movies that he's made for such a long time. I think that Wolf of Wall Street is one that like, really embrace popular culture. I know Goodfellas definitely, but this one, I feel like, I don't know. Am I wrong about that? I just feel like this was a big, this one felt bigger than all the rest. Well, then I guess we're going to have that conversation and figure it out. All right. Well, I know that you love Goodfellas, so it's going to be a hard (laughs) battle for you to say that this is uh, better than Goodfellas. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's ridiculous to say that one of his movies made more of an impact, but it is always interesting to me that as a filmmaker gets older, that they meet their kind of most commercial successes towards the end of their career. Maybe that's because they've had the fans since when they started making movies. I don't know. It's a, it's Maybe a, it's that they shape us and then we grow up with them. Yeah. Peter, John Waters is now in the Academy Library Museum. He's in the museum. He's like a member of the Academy because David Lynch helped him get voted in. This is a guy you would have never thought that in the 70s. And Scorsese also shocked people that same way. I love it. All right. So uh, we will see you next week for Wolf of Wall Street. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.